G'day, John Chavarro here, um, bringing you back to the Detour podcast. We've uh, had, had a uh, relaunch. Uh, so each week I'll be chatting with my friends from around the, uh, the planet, uh, talking about life and uh, their careers, current issues that we're facing in today's uh, very unstable environment. Um, and, and today's guest is uh, someone pretty special when it comes to talking about the detour, Dan Jones. Dan uh, was the man behind the original detour movie uh, and the amazing All for One uh, movie and, and, of course, Backstage Pass, which uh, he made famous for, for the Michigan Scott team. But before we chat with Dan, I just wanted to mention our, our great sponsors because they're back with us. So uh, last year, the Tour de France, uh, the Detour podcast, was sponsored by... Um, Lexus of Blackburn, um, who have been a great part, part of us in, 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 uh, in cycling. And, of course, uh, Bike Exchange uh, and Let's Go Motorhome. So I just thought we'd just do a little spiel to, to, to uh, thank them and, and, and welcome them back. Uh, Bike Exchange, uh, at the moment, I was just talking with, with them uh, yesterday, actually, and they're saying how they've got something like 86% um, uh, increase in, in bike star sales online and bike shops have been saying it's been like uh, Christmas so it's been absolutely enormous for the bike industry um, it's one of been one of the industries that's uh, gone well in this uh, uh, terrible time them and the supermarkets I think and, and wine shops <laughs> seem to have done really well but um, so, so bike exchange uh, who are the um, uh, online and marketplace leaders. So uh, if you're after a, after a, a bike or any accessories, just jump online to bikeexchange.com and uh, you, you'll find something for sure. And, of course, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Lexus of Blackburn, well, a lot of people, their life will change after this. I uh, won't be travelling overseas for a while. I'll uh, probably be uh, wanting to get a caravan. Well, if you need a, a decent uh, vehicle to tow that caravan, well, I can tell you, the Lexus, uh, a wonderful car. I've had one for the last couple of years, and they're an amazing vehicle. So, And the place to go is out to Lexus of Blackman, who have been a great supporter of cycling. So yeah, go and see uh, Andrew and the team out there. And uh, let's go motorhomes. Uh, of course, not many uh, rentals going out right at this moment, but let's go is Australia's uh, um, premier um, motorhome company. And uh, so after this all settles down, people will be wanting to buy a Jayco caravan. And the more, better way before you go out and buy a caravan is go and uh, uh, rent one from Let's Go and uh, and uh, see how you how, how you really like it. It's a, it's a new world that's opening up for a lot of people. So they're our great partners, and they're back on board again. So I'd like to say thank you very much. Uh, and uh, we'll we'll throw to to bring Dan in now. Um, Dan, you uh, have been around uh, the cycling game for quite a while, but uh, I'll just sort of lead back to. Uh, how it, it began with you. I, I mean, I've done my first Tour de France was 1991, uh, and then I came back in 98, and I've covered them all since. But uh, I remember I took your dad uh, on mm. the tour in 2004. Yeah, and, correct. Uh, character, Emu. Emu. Ian Jones, sail boy, and me being a Gippsland boy originally, uh, we had lots of things in common. He was a mate of a mate, uh, and he came on board. And I met you because afterwards, uh, uh, Amy was 
um, loved making his home movie, so he made his home, little home movie and you were an aspiring young filmmaker. You're going to yeah. school and such. And so you knocked his uh, little uh, homemade uh, video into um, something we could all watch. And we had a, little, a bit of fun. I remember showing it uh, at one time and that's when I really got to meet with you. And afterwards, yeah. you said to me, you had this idea to make a, a movie. Tell me that. Well, if you if, do, I, I can go back to the start, which was I was at film school, as you said, and I wasn't a cycling fan. Like I remember growing up in the nineties, and and Dad would always have the Tour de France highlights on, and I remember thinking, oh, you know, this is pretty cool. Um, and it was all about Miguel Indurain then, and I remember the stat Amy told me was, oh, he's got a resting heart rate of like thirty beats a minute. And these guys are super fit. And I was like, wow, that's pretty impressive. But it was like what everyone gets into the Tour de France. It's the scenery. It's the colour. It's all the other stuff that isn't necessarily the bike race. So I still remembered all that. So then when I was at film school, I remember coming back to sale in 2004, my mum saying, hey, your father's got some news. He's going to go to the Tour de France. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, no, he's all, it's like one of those bucket list things. And uh, <clears throat> she said, oh, he knows... Through Dovey, he knows a bloke who can get him right up close with the world's best riders and, and access that you can't get anywhere else. Um, he's a former rider, uh, real character, loves a drink. Um, but yeah, like that's who he's going with. So I was intrigued because I was at film school thinking, far out, this this would be a bloody interesting little doco here because when you're at film school, you're all, all you're thinking about is like big picture stuff. You know, I want to make feature films. I want to do docos or whatever. So then when Emu came back and they had all this video footage, it was, I hadn't seen anything like it before because back then we didn't get as much coverage of the, the real behind the scenes of the Tour de France. You'd see the race, but that was pretty much it. Um, so when I saw like the village, like, you know, all the, the singers and dancers and, and the caravan and all this stuff, I was like, this is this is unbelievable. So fast forward to when I did the video and we had a, a night and I got to meet you, I, I was just like a dog let out of a hot car. I wouldn't stop bothering you saying, oh, you know, you, you do events, you do the Bay Crits. I'd love to get on board and, and do stuff with that. And so I, I did some work experience with you and, and Ian Gates and that at, at the 2005 Bay Crits. But then... Yeah, leading up to the 2005 tour, I remember I'd sort of made this commitment. If I have an idea, because I'd finished film school then and had to go, you know, find work. So I was doing wedding videos and, you know, corporate videos or whatever. And I remember thinking, far out, if I ever get an idea now, I'm just going to push it as hard as I can push it. And who cares? If it doesn't happen, at least I know I've given it a red-hot crack. And so in the case of the 2005 tour, it was literally – I reckon it was four weeks before the tour was scheduled to leave. And I rang you and said, hey, John, what are the chances of doing a doco on the Tour de France this year? And you're like, mate, I'll, I'll tell you, sweet FA. <laughs> like we're, we're leaving in three, four weeks. But what, what are you thinking? And I remember saying, well, I want to do a doco about you because of your story and your connection with the race. And the race will just sort of filter in around that. And your reaction was... Oh, right. Okay. Well, yeah, let's, 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 let's try and have a crack at this. And then you can tell the next bit because obviously. Well, actually, that's, that's true. But I did not think it would be possible because to, to be able to go on the Tour de France and shoot a documentary, you have to get 
the okay from whatever from that country's uh, provider. So SBS had the rights for uh, the Tour de France, and they still have uh, for Australia. So for, for, to make a documentary, you have to go to SBS, get permission for them to do it, and that just wasn't going to happen, especially in that short time frame. Uh, they're very protective, and they, 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 yeah. so then I got a phone call from Mike Tomolaris. About I can't remember what it was about now. It was about three weeks before the tour, and and 2005 was the first year that SBS was live every day, so they're covering the tour every day. So I remember saying, "Oh, gee, congratulations, Mike! Uh, that's going to be fantastic every day." He said, "Oh, yeah, put us under the pump." He said, "Just wish we had a slightly bigger budget because you have only got one crew, so getting the starts and the finishes is going to be hard." And mm. I went, "Ding!" The little light bulb went yeah. up. I said. Listen, I've got this young guy who's interested in making a documentary and uh, he's fresh out of film school, but he's keen as, I reckon, if you gave him the uh, the okay to, to make this doco, that he would shoot the starts for you. He said, you're kidding. Has he got a beta such and such a camera? Did, I said, Did you better yeah, cam? Not, not <laughs> knowing if you had one of those cameras. No. He said, give me his number. So I said, look, I'll, I'll flick it to you. Um, and... Uh, and was going to, so I, I hung up, rang you, Dan, and yeah. said, Listen, it might be on, mate. Have you got a beta cam, such and such? And you said, Piss off, that's 85 grand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the lens I alone said, was 50. <laughs> I said, You better go and find out how much to rent one, you know. So, anyway, only minutes later, I got a call from Ken Ship, who was the boss of sport, who still is the boss of sport at, at, at SBS. He said, uh, Johnny, what's this about a young guy? Uh, <clears throat> Did the spiel again. Next minute, they're in touch with you, uh, and uh, and you were coming to the tour. So that's how the first the detour movie began. I, I just remember just pure fear because it, it went from oh, there's no chance to we might be a chance to holy shit this is happening because when I went to rent the camera, the guy said oh what do you need this for? I said oh I'm filming the Tour de France. He goes oh that's a good gig to get. Um what lenses do you use? What what do you want me to rig it up with? And I'm thinking. Geez, I don't know. What, what lens brands are they? I said, oh, chuck a um, Canon on on the camera. And he's like, Canon? What do you use Canon? They're, they're shit. And I was like, oh, you know, I've just had a mate who worked at the factory or just spin something. He goes, oh, you don't mind if I put a Fuji on there, do you? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's fine, mate. And he's like, what, what tripods are you running, 18s or 20s? And I was like, oh, give us 20s. Like, these are these massive tripods. I had no idea. So then when I got all the equipment, and we were lucky that um, – Greg Hargrave, remember, came on board from Skilled Engineering. He gave some money, and Alan Lang, um, he <laughs> he chipped in as well. And we're literally pulling this together. We're flying out on the Tuesday. We had the camera. We had enough to um, get the plane ticket. And we're just going to work it out as we, as we went along. So when I was on the flight over, that's when it hit me. I was like, oh, no, I'm in deep here. I've never filmed for TV. I've done <laughs> wedding videos that were average. I did some corporate videos that were average. And now I'm going to the Tour de France. I'm not going to be able to bluff my way out of this. So when we landed, average, mate. One thing, you weren't average. You were below average when you first started. <laughs> yeah, so when we landed, I remember getting the camera out and testing how it worked because I'd never, I'd never used one before. And then... I remember going to the start and um, they wanted some just general color and stuff like that. I, I didn't know what I was doing. And then they wanted you to do some interviews, not on the prologue. I think the prologue, they had it sorted because it was in the one spot they could they could handle that. But they stage one, they needed 
an interview with Cadell Evans or whoever. So we, we went and filmed this interview and instead of filming for TV, which is like locked off, you know, you hold it there. I went wide and had this wide shot of you chatting with Cadell. There's cords and stuff going everywhere. And uh, Tom Elias, he wasn't a fan of that, was he, Iffy? No, no, he didn't want me in. He wasn't, I had one of my questions. I didn't want me in the shot at all. And he wasn't a real fan of you either in the beginning. But much as they complained, they used every bit of vision that you took for them. I just, but you learned on the, on, on the run, mate. You got I, better and better I, I, each day. You, you got one of I their, remember one of after, after giving him – He knew you didn't know what you were doing. After the Cadell debacle, I remember he pulled me aside at the finish line and he said, mate, I've had a look at the footage – of Cadell, can you just be level with me? Have you ever worked in TV before? I said, oh, I'll be honest with you. No, nah, mate, I just did corporate videos and wedding videos. And I remember just he put his hands on his head and he's like, <laughs> oh, oh, shit, this is not good. So then he said, I'll, I'll book some time in with Honey uh, to, to run you through exactly what we need. So then Honey sat me down and said, look, when you're doing interviews, and she gave us the run through. And then, and then, Talking about footage, we, we knew how to film then. And there was the big time trial crash with Dave Zabriskie. And I remember we went to the start and got interviews with these sort of guys about the crash. And we were getting really good stuff. So, as you said, by the end of the Tour de France, um, I think they were happy with what we're doing. But, yeah, the early days were, was definitely an eye-opener. And um, I, I was also, like, in awe of um, the chaos that was on that trip. Like, um, we had... Bill Schwarzenberg, who was this this larger than life character, and you know, you, you had him going up to like on the last day. There was Ron Howard sitting there with his wife, and and remember, you'd banned Bill from doing interviews halfway through because we got to the top of Courchevel, and one of the Swanniers had the jackets for T-Mobile over his arm to to give to the riders, and and he thought he was part of the caravan, so he's just grabbed a handful of jackets and said thanks, and almost caused a big punch on, and it was just. <laughs> It's getting pretty embarrassing. So you said to him, Bill, that's it. No more interviews. You're done, mate. And then, um, yeah, we saw Ron Howard sitting there and I thought, geez, there's no one else around. I've, I've got to ask him to do this interview because he was filming the Da Vinci Code. And I said, Bill, um, do you know that guy over there? And he's like, oh, yeah, nah, who is it? I said, it's Ron Howard. He goes, oh, yeah. I go, happy days. He's a massive director. You don't, you never heard of him. He goes, nah, nah, don't watch TV and that. I was like, okay, well, he's big news. Can you just ask him? questions about the tour, but just be on your best behavior, mate. He goes, yeah, yeah, no worries, no worries. So he grabbed the kangaroo badges, went up to Ron Howard, and first thing he does is kiss Ron Howard's wife on each cheek and then one on the lips. Uh, and I was just like, oh, no, we're back to square one. But he loved it. He pissed himself <laughs> up. We got the interview with him, and then he got um, Senator John Kerry. And and then we had all this footage. So we had, you know, 20 hours of stuff, came back to Australia, and then that's when the, the hard work kicked into gear because – one thing I learned about the documentary process is <clears throat> getting the footage is, is not as difficult when compared to how you put this thing together. And remember, we had so many um, catch-ups and trying to work out the format and um, interweaving all the stories. But in the end, we, we um, had a final product that we, we ended up showing at the, um, the Melbourne Film Festival. And um, yeah, that, that was a big thrill because I was only 24 and, and to have sort of my first crack at making a, a doco shown at the film festival w was huge. And um, I, I still remember like the opening night, how excited we all were. And uh, Alan Lang dressing up in that black suit with the, the kangaroos on the back on the bikes. And um, that, that, 
that was a, a pretty big thrill. But I think looking back at my career now is um, that probably happened a little bit too early because it almost it was almost like things were just falling into my lap. And you know, it's like you get thrown around, you're a bit like a cat, you you always land on your feet. But I, I think it was too much for my brain to process like, oh, this this industry, you know, I reckon I've got it worked out. But um, as I've learned, like it's it's definitely a lot harder. Yeah, Dan, and I still I still remember, you know, where when we, we premiered the Detour movie at the uh, Melbourne Film Festival. And it was an amazing uh, week of, of films being shown um, at, at uh, Royal Federation Square there. And it was a packed house, um, but to see everyone stand up at the end and just applaud uh, was really something special. And you, and you knew that we touched uh, on something pretty, because there wasn't many bike movies around back then. We touched on something pretty special, actually. Yeah, I mean, um, they. I look back now as well, given that we showed all for one at the the Melbourne Film Festival, and they really did look after me back then. Like they tried to line up as much media as they could for the film, just because they wanted to obviously get behind a new new filmmaker that was young and, and sort of keen. Um, we we didn't get it as much love second time round because I was thinking, well, you know, I've, I've been through this before, like you know. When are they going to line up all the chats and that? It just wasn't the case. So I, I look back now and I really appreciate um, the support that they gave us for that. Um, and then obviously that was still around the time that the Armstrong um, brand was so strong. And we had – obviously you gave Lance a, a kangaroo badge and a wallet on the last day and <laughs> and so forth. So there's still there's bits of content in there that you could sort of market as well. But um, no, it was, it was an awesome experience, which obviously led to going across in 07. Um, and that's when I first met Jerry Ryan. And we we're like, I remember you, you're really keen to, to, if we've done it once before, something will happen in this tour. We'll get as good, if not better stories. Let's, let's go again. And yeah, I suppose that tour didn't really disappoint either, given that, um, you know, we had a lot of good characters on there and, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, the first impressions with Jerry, I, I couldn't believe how down to earth him and John Rebo were. Um, you look at all the different business ventures, all the different stuff that they're involved with, but they were just just like one of the one of the regular Joes. And and on that well, they trip, were, were they? Yeah, early on, they got to experience <laughs> the best and worst of the Iffy tours. Well, true, because it started in uh, in uh, in Britain, in, in England, of course, in London, and uh, we went up and stayed uh, in Phil Liggett's little village, um, and, and the, his local pub uh, looked after us really well. And uh, I still laugh at uh, us all standing around there. Um, well, I'm giving the instructions of what we're going to do over the next three weeks. Yeah, and your flies <laughs> open. Flies <laughs> 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 And you, you did a roast for Phil Liggett a couple of months ago now, and I remember throwing out a gag that went down like a lead balloon saying that in that trip, I saw something I'd never seen again in my time in cycling, and that was Phil shouted around a beers. <laughs> I remember <laughs> Phil, Phil didn't find that too funny. The crowds, that was obviously when um, Robbie McEwen won that stage, uh, on stage one after the prologue, but the crowds that tour for the the England start they were, they were estimated at two million um, each day. It was I hadn't seen anything like it until they, the tour went back to the UK in 2014. It was just insane. 
Yes, look, that, that was the biggest crowds I'd ever seen. Uh, um, uh, before that, uh, a few stages that went to Germany blew me away. And, of course, the big mountain stages, the famous ones, up to West and that are always huge. But those crowds uh, started with the, with the prologue in London, and that was just amazing, you know. Um, Ken Schlara won it, Stewie come unstuck. I remember I was uh, I was ghosting his uh, his uh, column for Salt and News at the time, so there were some challenges with that, but uh, that was amazing. And then the next day, heading out of London on the stage to Canterbury, it was mm. just just ridiculous. Just so many people. It was mm. it was just. Uh, I mean, we know that the the mountain stages. You know, they're a big crowd. But when you've got it on the flat, when the bike riders are doing 50k an hour to 60k an hour and the crowds haven't got barricades in the middle of nowhere and they're starting to come in, it, me, it got a little bit dangerous a few times then. And, of course, that great uh, first stage where Robbie's, uh, because it was a prologue in stage one, where he crashed and uh, how he won it, we'll still never know. It's one of the great stage wins of all time. Uh, but he really had hurt himself. But, you know, it was something pretty, pretty special. And on our movie, Dennis going absolutely ballistic, uh, which you put into the, uh, to the to the second detail movie, which is very funny. Yeah. Um, and that, that trip as well uh, was the emergence of Cadell Evans as, as a GC contender. Obviously, he'd finished um, fourth, I think, the year before, but uh, finishing second that year behind Contador. And um, I remember the at the end of it, there was a real big excitement as far out. Like, we've got someone that can win the tour. Um, and I remember, because uh, I hadn't really, I'd interviewed him a bit in 05, but you look at the footage of 05, he's, a, he's almost different in his interviews because there was no pressure. Like he seemed a lot more relaxed when you talk to him in the village and he'd share stories or whatever. But what I was seeing is, and you know, going into 08 and further on, was one, the emergence of Cadell the rider, but two, almost going more and more into his shell as the pressure mounted for him to to deliver. Because you fast forward then to 2008. So at the end of 07, we, we approached Jerry and said, look, Fox have got the sport, um, the rights to the tour, but they're not really doing anything with it. What if we went over and did some interviews and and we met Scotty McGrory on that Tour de France in 07 and, and he reached out and said, look, I want to get into the media. Um, if there's anything that pops up, love to have a crack and stars aligned for that as well. But then when we went in 08, um, Cadell was the favourite the red hot favorite because um uh contador wasn't wasn't racing that year and uh he it was the first time ever he went in with the number one tag uh, the number on on his back without winning the tour and um it was just it was a real eye opener because doing the docos you know um you get to paris and you're like ah oh, far out i've got like four or five months of work ahead of me now. Now it really starts. So at least doing the TV, when you when you finished in Paris, your job was done. But also there's more pressure and demand to get interviews with everyone. And obviously everyone wanted Cadell. And, and it was a real eye-opener, I thought, that year. And knowing what I know now with the Green Edge guys and, and GC and, and the requirements there, you have to motivate all your team. You have to build a group around you that want to do everything they can to bust their ass to get you the victory. And they always struggled to get riders that would go really deep for Cadell in those lotto years and so forth. Remember they brought in um, Popovich, I think, and he was a really good domestique, but then when he fitted with Cadell, road shit. I reckon, particularly in 08, when you saw 
Cadell wouldn't go on the bus with his teammates, which I, I could not believe. Like, if you're a GC rider and you want to motivate your team, you go on the team bus because the when the riders come in and they're cooked, part of your job, which goes a long way, is getting around your teammates and going, hey, thanks for your job today or just communicating with them or whatever. Cadell had his, had his own little bus out the back, which um, caused a lot more stress for getting interviews and so forth. There wasn't a good... Um, communication and direction with the guys in the background at Lotto that were controlling the interviews and so forth. And it just I just remember there's so much more stress uh, around Cadell that year in terms of it just felt a bit chaotic. They, these were the ones when he head-butted the cameraman. Um, he When he took yellow, he, he whacked the guy. Um, I think he threatened to, to kill someone who stepped on his dog. How, how did you find it? trying to get grabs and stuff with cuddles in those years. Look, Cadell, um, I've had some challenges with Cadell over the years. Look, I've got to start by saying he's a sensational bloke and a real straight shooter. You can't, you know, but he was under a lot of pressure and, and he wasn't comfortable with the media either. No. As you said, in that first time when, when, when you did it in 2007, Went in that second detour, but you're dealing with a Cadell who wasn't under quite the pressure that happened when he became a favourite. I personally think uh, he, he should have won three tours to France. I think he was the best rider on three occasions. The one he won, and I think he probably should have beaten Conador um, and Sastre. That's my personal belief. Well, he never uh, he never had a good team around him. He never really had guys that could go deep with him into those final climbs. Like the even the guys that were meant to be their super domestiques were just never really there. Um when he got to BMC it seemed he had a lot more support. But those um those early years with Lotto it, it and there was also a lot of behind the scenes stuff going on as well. Like obviously um to have full support you need a whole team going for G C and then you had Robbie McEwen there in O eight that I don't think he was keen to have him in the makeup, which then Robbie needs um, some level of support in the sprints. Um, and then I remember the, the rest day when he finally took yellow in 08, we had to go cover that. And um, they had the beds of burning music and um, it was almost like a celebration. Whereas, as you know, like a lot of those sort of things, it's about keeping a lid on it and being able to yeah. sort of stay focused. But um, I think it, it got to the end of 08 and um, 09 and then and things just seemed to keep going wrong where I think it got to the point where it's like, I think the time's passed. Well, at least I thought um, he'd, he'd missed his, his big opportunities. And then um, obviously 2011 was like one of the most unbelievable experiences I've had covering the um, the win that, that Cadell had that year, particularly, um, yeah, that stage when Andy Schleck won and, and Cadell was on the front and had to pull all that time back, and then the the time yeah. trial, yeah, and then the um the Alpe d'Huez stage. Like I think the Tour de France back then um, had a taste of what they should have probably been doing. Those shorter stages where it's just on from the gun. Um, it's it's funny with cycling. Uh, they they're very traditional with their approach, and and no, we have to run long stages because of, we've always done it like this or whatever. But if you look at it from an entertainment point of view, um, you know, every time they've done something like that where they've shortened it and they've just narrowed that field. Oh no doubt, that's, that's true. It's fantastic. That's, that's true. They're, 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 all these short 
especially these short mountain stages, have just been amazing because it's gone bang from the start. And you don't need to have 240-kilometre stages. I don't think you need any of them, personally. I think it, it creates boring racing. But uh, you you just touched on something there. Like, I mean, I, we talked about Cadell and the challenges we have that. I remember lining up the start of one tour when I was riding for the Geelong Addy, and he, you know, is the Geelong's own son now. They love him. He's got a place down Barwon Heads, and he's adopted uh, the region. And um, I went to, to grab him uh, the day before the race started. And, and he had a go at me. He said, uh, you know what? I reckon if I said something was black, you'd say it was white. I said, oh, what do you mean? He said, well, that piece you had in the Addy last week, because he was Googled everything, he said, I didn't say that. I said, well, okay, yeah, you, you did, uh, but, you know, you didn't answer any of my emails or anything, so I used some old quotes. <laughs> Which, he said, well, it's not it was out of context, so he cracked it. So yeah. the next day at the start, I said to him, I thought, this is going to be good. I've got these three weeks covering the Geelong, uh, um, Geelong zone, and he's not talking to me. So I said, look, I'll only write exactly what you say word for word. He said, I'll believe that when I read it. So anyway, but that was done and we had, uh, he, he did a good tour and uh, I think it might have been the one he ran fourth in. Um, but um, he, he was great uh, 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 and we got over that. Uh, but I, as I mentioned, he wasn't comfortable with the media and he tried to, I believe, he tried to be, you know, try to be a little bit, say something a bit different, but not being who he actually was. But mm. once he won that world title, Actually, it seemed to change him. He got yeah. more confidence in himself, and uh, and then he did those great tours. And 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 even though there might have been times where you know it'd be a pain, um, you know I, I found it, found it a lot easier to deal with. But you just also just touch on the, those two, that Galibier and that next stage, uh, Alpe d'Huez, which is like three days and uh, two days to go in the Tour de France. Um, that Galibier stage is probably just about the best I've ever seen. And we're talking about everyone, all the time, all the tours that I've done, mm. that was the best effort by anyone. I mean, just went to the front. They ever, it looked like everyone was suckering in, in you know, it looked like, mm. uh, okay, a great rider out the front. Andy Schleck is put in a blinder and, and look, almost the tour was almost over. And he realised there was no one going to help him. He just went to the front, lifted the pace, lifted the pace. And in the end, they started getting dropped off the back. And I thought, what the heck is going on here? It was yeah. just amazing. And, and then uh, I was going to say that. And yeah. then the the bike dramas he had on the um, the Alpe d'Huez stage. Remember when he pulled over yeah, and, and we're like, oh, well, that's it. It's it's done. And and the thing the thing that people don't see behind the scenes when you're doing the um, interviews and that is the scrums, like those post race <laughs> scrums, like going to Greenwich. They're one thing that I don't really miss because. Um, particularly with Cadell because he wasn't comfortable with the media. There was never a situation where Cadell could ride over and go, okay, yeah, let's do this interview now, whatever. It always felt like you're forcing this guy to do something that he absolutely hates. And if he has a good day, you might get a, a slightly better version. But if he's had a day where he's stressed and he's cooked, it was literally just like feeding frenzy. And I remember after the Alpe d'Huez, um, we'd had issues with the American crew, NBC, cutting in on us. And there's a sense of um, when you're 
covering Cadell from an Australian perspective, you should have first right to questions in that. Um, so when American crews are kicking things off, we, we obviously got a bit shitty and it got to the point where I said, I remember Emu was on that tour and I said to him, listen, mate, we're going to need you at the finish line here. And he put a bib on and his job was to literally shepherd at those scrums and block the American crew. And <laughs> he, he got a bit excited. I think he knocked one of them. The cameraman on his ass, and and they didn't get an interview with Cadell at the at the finish there. But um, yeah, I mean, as you said, like he, he's an unbelievable bike ride. I mean, I've I've had my sort of run-ins from time to time with him just because he's different, and you know, I think he's a product of the people around him as well. And it, I don't think it takes much to probably set him off at times in periods of stress or whatever. But um, no one can question what he what he'd done for the sport because the scenes at um, Federation Square after he'd won the tour and to oh, see little kids wearing yeah, seeing little kids yeah. wearing yellow jerseys and talking about cycling mm -hmm. and, and wanting to be the next kid Evans, you can't you can't question, you know, what sort of impact that's mm -hmm. had on and you mentioned like bike exchange, like, you know, I think they were handing out um, little cards that day at Fed Square and and their whole business took off. So um yeah, you can't question any of that. Yeah, I, I do. Uh, you reminded me of uh, at Alpduez. So when we got to the top of Alpduez, uh, there was the time trial to go. So it was, it was that finishes three days to go. So the time trial the next day, uh, and then the finale into in Paris. So um, he did a great ride up uh, Alpduez. As you said, had the bike uh, problems, and then was was brilliant. And so, but so it ended up you had Andy Sleck leading. Frank Schleck second and Cadell third, but only, you know, less than a minute in it. And so you knew that Cadell was going to get that time plus uh, in the time. We just felt it. Um, there was no way that Andy would be able to get within a couple of minutes of, uh, of Cadell in the time trial. And so I remember we were walking uh, from our hotel. We heard this music. So we stopped and there was a, a chalet which was just full of, uh, of people from Luxembourg. And you had um, Andy Schlecks, uh, uh, Frank Schleck, their, their father uh, and a nephew or whatever up on the stage and all the, I reckon the whole population of Luxembourg just about were out and uh, all cheering and whatever. So uh, I just, for a joke, said, because Stuart O'Grady was uh, team captain of, uh, of the team, with riding with Schlecks uh, against our own Cadell, you know. So I, because I'm good mates with Stewie, I flicked a message to Stewie uh, saying, oh, we're here listening to uh, um, the Schleck family. Uh, and I, had a, I think I had a bit of a soundbite uh, of them singing. I said, you guys can all celebrate tonight. We'll celebrate tomorrow night when Cadell takes the, 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 the uh, stage, you know. So a few minutes later, I get a call back. From, it says Stuart O'Grady. So I, I, I said, okay, Stewie. But I didn't realise he was sharing a room with Andy Schleck. And uh, it was, he said, it's not Stewie, it's Andy. Get stuffed. <laughs> 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 well, he didn't actually say the word stuffed, but close enough, that'll do. So, so, yeah. They were um, they were good value, the, the Schleck boys, during that period. They, we used to give them kanga badges and, you know, they really warmed to the Aussie, Aussie media. Um, and the other thing as well is when Cadell did win, we obviously interviewed a few people after the finish and and they spoke so well and genuine about their congratulations congratulations for Cadell and yeah. and they they seemed genuinely happy that 
if anyone was going to roll them, because it must be pretty tough to know that, you know, you were so close to winning the tour. But, you know, that really stood out that, um, you know, they were just really gracious in defeat. Yes, they were. I thought they were brilliant in Paris. But for two brothers to finish second and third, it would have been pretty hard to take, I guess. Yeah. But even even that period as well, obviously you had Lance's comeback. And um, one thing that I, I wasn't aware of uh, in the in the journalistic circles was things like black books. And um, I look back now at, the, at that period and, and from our perspective, you know, we just wanted to get access to Lance and, and you know, as many questions and uh, form of relationship. And that obviously meant we didn't ask any hard questions, even though you knew in the media centre there were sort of rumblings going on that, you know, there could be more to the story. But um, we obviously took the, the other approach, which was just, Buttery's bread, me and Scotty. And, and I still remember um, when Lance rode the 2011 Tour Down Under, it was his last one, and we were there and we we're trying to get interviews and Lance wouldn't talk to us. And we thought, geez, what's going on here? Have we offended him? Because we thought we had this good relationship. Mm. And they they said, no, it's because Gregor Brown's there trying to ask questions about this um, Sports Illustrated article uh, about, you know, doping and that. So if Gregor's around, he won't talk. So we'll leave that up to you guys. So it's pretty pretty crafty because then you know, we're going to fight the battles for him. So Gregor's just trying to do his job. So we were yep. there going, Gregor, look, mate, could you piss off so we can get some time to ask these fluff questions with Lance? Um, but, yeah, I mean, like pretty pretty amazing journey that whole period when we were doing the Fox stuff. And then that obviously leads into, um, you know, the time with Green Edge. And the 2011 tour was the f- when Jerry approached me and, and asked if – if I would come on board with the team and, and basically it was a blank canvas. He, he said, yeah, I just, I just want to cover the journey for one year and we can do a documentary at the end of that, that first year with the team. Um, but yeah, I pretty much had just, just a blank canvas to, to shoot and film whatever. And this back then there wasn't many teams doing any of this sort of regular content. And I remember getting to the, the first training camp and talking to the riders and it was obviously all about trust, you know, because I was thinking, well, if I was a if I was a rider, I wouldn't want someone filming me 24-7. Um, it would just piss me off. So um, I said to them, look, it's, it's going to be about, by the end of the year, I just want people to know you guys as, as people, you know, not as athletes. And, um, yeah, I think, like, it wasn't until we got to just before Milan San Remo and I started doing the backstage passes where – because, you know, I was just doing post-race interviews and, and easier stuff. I thought, look, I think I can turn this doco style around pretty quick. I'll, I'll have a crack and see if I can do it. And, um, yeah, the, the rest is history for, for that whole chapter because that, <laughs> that gave so much momentum to the story of the team because people were getting um, all these inside sort of action bits um, that were part of their routine, particularly during the tour. You know, we'd have a lot of people messaging in. If I was like five minutes late posting the videos, you get this almost hate mail because it was, <laughs> it was part of their routine in the morning. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm obviously I'm pretty proud of, of what we achieved um, throughout that period. And, um, yeah, some amazing stories that are always going to live on YouTube that you can watch, you know, 10 years down the track. I've got to give you some accolades there, Dan, because it was really 
partly uh, your um, personality, the, the guys trusted you and you, you create a really special bond and friendship with all the riders. So you got a lot more out of them than what a normal person asking the same question would have got. You got, you got that trust meant they knew they could say anything and you wouldn't use it against them. You, you would use it in the right way. So it was, a, it was, it, it was very, very good. But also um, you had an amazing ability to, uh, which I learned early on in the two detour movies, you know, for someone with no background in sport, you really quickly got to the crux of what was required. But you also had, I don't know how, you could turn around those backstage passes so quickly. Normally, you know, the Americans doing that, there'd be three or four people working on it. It would take them hours and hours longer to be able to put together uh, something as quick as you did. You probably cheated a little bit on some of that music. You probably went a fraction over what you're supposed to do with some of the uh, hit songs you put on here and there. But, but no, that was a, a, a really... Uh, an uh, amazing ability, and, and you set a standard that a lot of other teams have been trying to do ever since. Um, as you said, no one was doing it back then. What you did with those backstage passes become what all the teams are trying to do now. They realise that's what people want to see. It's a, a bit more than just the bike race and the bike riders. What do these people like? And you're being able to deliver that. Well, I think the the key, couple of key things that I was thinking about early on was I wanted firstly to make content that my mum and my sister could watch and follow that know nothing about cycling. It's always harder to go after the the market that you know is going to get the biggest cut through because if there's people that drag them into watching the videos that that weren't necessarily cycling nutters, then you know the whole thing's going to expand or it's going to grow a lot quicker. If I had just done content talking about gear ratios and all the technical side of the sport i mean who's i'm not interested in that stuff even today but um the the other hard part was um i felt that and i look back now it took a, a mental toll um turning those videos around because i got into a routine where i was just willing to do those hours and because I knew that as soon as the next stage started, the last video was almost obsolete. So you had to keep churning these out. But sometimes, you know, you wouldn't finish editing till three, four in the morning and you've got to be up at seven the next day and you've got to be doing the transfers and that's fine for a, a week-long stage race. But, I mean, you saw me at the end of some of these tours. I mean, I was absolutely cooked. I got to the end of the 2015 um, Vuelta and – weird stuff was going on like i remember getting to the end of the race and sitting there and i couldn't even eat dinner like my body was just almost felt like it was going into shutdown i said to I find the that doc, hard to believe dan well there oh, no, honestly yeah that's how cool I was. Um, and, and i had to make a call early on as well like the early days you know you'd have a few drinks and you didn't really care or whatever but then you worked out that it just made the job so much harder. So you had to actually start getting a lot more discipline on the grandies. But I remember, yeah, that for Welter, just getting to the end and just being so cooked and talking to the doc. And he said, listen, mate, you've just, you, you're burnt out. You, you're completely fried. You need to actually rest up, take a bit of time. Like once this for Welter's finished, you know, because back then you used to get a month or two off. And then what I found is once I started all for one, there was no downtime anymore because you've got the doco on top of that as well. Yeah. And like as bad as this coronavirus period is, um, for me personally, um, it's been a breath of fresh air just taking the pace off everything 
and spending time with the family and not having to to really bust yourself to that point where you think oh, I'm actually starting to feel a bit cooked here. Um, and that's the downside, I suppose, of you, you develop a, an element of control. You know, you, I probably could have got more people involved to help with the filming and editing and all that sort of stuff. But you get so used to controlling that narrative yourself. And yeah, I found it difficult at times with the all for one because, you know, I'm working with Marcus and, and the way he put something together was different to how I do it. So there's this constant control thing in this space, which, which is hard to manage as well. But I think, but I think in the end, like, you know, you just learn from it. I think, um, you know, you've, you've got to find that balance where you, you go hard with your work stuff, but you've also got to switch off. And I think you see a lot of the writers as well. You, the, the good ones or the ones that can have prolonged careers are the ones that can find that balance, you know, where they can, they can race and they can get serious and, do everything that they need to do, but then they've got this ability to flick the switch and, you know, not let it drive them into the, into the ground. Exactly. Like, like, we used to like do. you. <laughs> <laughs> Play up till two o'clock in the morning, get four hours sleep and then back to yeah. the next day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, but yeah, no, like, um, it, it, yeah, as I said, it's a, it's a really good, um, good period and, and i'm glad that a lot of it's archived so you know you can go back and watch it at any time yes well i took most time to sit back and uh, and watch a detour one of the the original detour again you know I, I thought detour the movie which is the second one was actually better in, in lots of ways it was a lot more polished uh and um you know we, we told the story a little bit better but the original one was funny it yeah, yeah. Well, you're looking at it now, it's particularly with the sign-off when we were talking up Lance. Like it's it, it should be filed in the comedy section now. Yeah. Do you believe in miracles? Yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah, um, exactly. you've you've got someone that you want to bring on, Johnny. I hear that was on the tours um, from 2017 to 2019. Yeah, Sammy Edmund, who uh, um, you know, journalist for many years with the Herald Sun, and has uh, now just uh, stood down and uh, um, joined uh, SEN Croc Media as their uh, sports guru. Uh, so Sammy uh, did uh, uh, three tours with me, D tours, and I think he did a couple with you as well, or another one at least. Um, and uh, yeah. Uh, Keen cyclist himself, he, he gets out the bike still, uh, but we had some fun and games, and so we, we should bring him on. Okay, so now I've got uh, Sammy Edmund, who's uh, done a few detours with me, uh, and uh, how's life in the fast lane, Sam? Too fast, Ify. I'll tell you what, I wish I was on a detour right about now. Three detours I've done with you, and uh, I've got to say I'm lucky and uh, very happy and somewhat relieved that I'm here to talk about them today. Sammy, do you feel that it adds years and years to your life when you get back from a detour? I mean, I've seen a lot of riders get to Paris and they're just empty, um, but I've seen the same, if not worse, for people that have been on Johnny's trips. Well, it didn't add years to my life, Dan. It actually took years off. I will die an early death because of this. There's no doubt about it. Such was the stress of juggling Rupert Murdoch on one hand and the pressure and the peer group pressure to join Ify for a glass of uh, rosé uh, post-stage. It was, uh, you know, Rupert, rosé, Rupert, rosé, but eventually we navigated it. 
Yeah. And it's interesting now that you're still you're still involved with me, but you can give the Rupert the flick. Yeah, yeah, we're at, uh, we're at Croc Media now, which which is good in its own. Uh, that's a whole other series of podcasts. But now, really enjoying it at the moment. But gee whiz, I wouldn't we all love to be in France at the moment for a detour? If he goes without saying. Yeah, so we had some we had some great uh, great trips. So two thousand was it two thousand and seventeen? Seventeen first one. Yeah, I worked with you. I think I'd worked with you domestically, it's fair to say, but you don't really, and you're aware of the stories around Ify Dan, but it's not until that you go on one of his famous Kentucky tours or detours, as they became known, that you get a true grasp of the man. And my mind immediately goes back to the prologue at Dusseldorf, wet, all the excitement in Germany um, for the prologue. And we had a guest with us, if he didn't, we from a quarter menthar, not, not what you would call a low paying guest by any stretch of the imagination. And he was going to join us for a peek behind the curtain, as it were, and uh, if he was going to uh, open up all sorts of doors for him. So you can imagine the shock, Dan, that he got when he met us in the lobby and was told before the tour had even started that, sorry, mate. The car's been towed and uh, we might have to walk to the start. He's like, ha it's funny, boys. No, no, really, the car has been towed. <laughs> you always had issues with cars on the detours, Ify. Look, remember yeah, that true. that story when you're with uh, Dennis and you're on the freeway and you about your, your stickers? There's always uh, – stickers, are, that's not really such an issue, but getting towed away is the worst. I've had, like, I think I've had three or four towaways. Um, didn't you actually? If you didn't, you pay a big, big, uh, a big price in Dusseldorf to get it back off them, though, didn't you? That's six hundred bucks. <laughs> but wasn't there some sort of discount that was potentially in the making there in Dusseldorf? Didn't you get yes, told when I you went and picked I'm, the car? Exactly. I think we got fifty cents off. Yeah, something like that for paying cash. <laughs> but you never, you never seem to respect the local road rules and laws over there, John. You always thought that there was an exemption because you're an Aussie journo and the tour was on that a lot of these laws just didn't apply to you, particularly around no parking zones, one-way streets, because there's a lot of times in, in places like Toulouse where you'd be driving the wrong way up a one-way street and I'd say, Ify, this is one way, and you said, yeah, I'm, I'm only going one way. You didn't care. <laughs> It wasn't so much for an Aussie journalist, mate. It's more the, the the Tour de France official stickers. They do carry a little bit of weight. Oh. I remember in the early days, one guy had become our mate. He was the actual policeman in charge of the whole Tour de France. And we would become very good mates. Enjoyed a quiet ale together. And he gave me his personal card. And it did get me out of jail a few times. But it was really, really disappointing when he finally retired. Yeah. There was a there was a year, Dan. Speaking of stickers being the the save all in Luxembourg, I think it was Ify, and we were end of the day. Just wanted to get to the hotel. You know how it is. And um, he's finally found it down a tight little laneway, and it turns out it's directly opposite the police station. And you know the only car park available after much searching is in fact police only. Do not park here. I said, Ify, I don't think that's a good idea. Ah, no, it'll be fine. It'll only be a couple. Only be a couple of minutes. Or well, come back out and move it. Of course, he doesn't move it. We come back out. There's tickets. There's stickers. There's notes. What do you think you're doing? You can't park here. Oh, geez. But how, how did you find? How did you find covering the Tour de France, Sammy, in those years, um, 17, 18, and 19? Um, obviously, you know you've got the stresses of Ify, but it's it's an event that's pretty hard to describe unless you're there in person. Yeah. 
I find it really hard to answer this question because on one part, it's incredibly stressful, but on the same part, there's nowhere else you'd rather be either. So it's this constant wrestle of emotions between how fun is this and how bloody hard is this? You know, you're riding in the back seat, you're trying to get off a mountain, the laptop's bobbing all over the place. If he wants to go and have a drink, of course, you're on deadline, you're trying to write five stories, do a podcast, do a phone interview, do a radio interview. It's all absolutely happening with bugger or Wi-Fi signal as well for good measure. And you're top and tailing with whoever you're lucky enough to be sharing a bed with, a room with, whatever's going on. So it's it's an absolute uh, cocktail of emotions. And, and you're right, it is impossible to describe. At the end of the at the end of the four weeks, you uh you need another four weeks to recover. <laughs> and um, Johnny, there's a story about um, accommodation with Sammy that he got. Uh, there's like an, an outhouse, a pig house, or a roadhouse. One of you, it always happens about the middle of the tour. Yes, it was was very fortunate for me that I actually ended up staying in another accommodation that day. And even more fortunate that Jerry Ryan, who was supposed to be staying in that same place that uh, you were there as well, Dan, and and, uh, um, he, at the last minute, decided to stay with the team. So uh, we definitely dodged a bullet that that, that day. Hey, uh, Dan... Despite the odd pothole when it came to Iffy's choice of accommodation, one thing you cannot fault him on, though, you can fault him on his parking, but you can't fault him on his ability to drive the vehicle in question. Now, especially when it comes to getting down from summit finishes, which anyone who's been to the tour will tell you is an absolute nightmare. It's single lane. It's bumper to bumper. The police and everyone's got to get off first. You sat still. And I remember the day, 2018, it might have been Iffy. We were on the uh, Perisort, I think it was. Typical story, bumper to bumper. You're thinking and wrestling with your morals about, do I go down the wrong way on the mountain, which is empty? No one's coming up. I can go down and save a heap of time here. Just as you're thinking about it, a car about three cars ahead of us suddenly pulls out. And you're like, this is our chance. On the wheel. It's always used to say, Dan, on the wheel. On on the the wheel, wheel. yep. Yep. We get on the wheel only to find the gendarme coming up around the next uh, switchback en masse, about uh, 10 cars in a convoy. The car in front of us, it turns out, isn't seeking to take a shortcut to go down the mountain. They're veering off onto the nature strip because they've got engine trouble and the bonnet comes up. We're like, (laughs) where do we go? What are we going to do? We've been exposed. So we quickly duck in behind this car and gee do you reckon the frenchies were happy about what we were doing and then it turns out the motorist in front gets out and we're like oh he's had car trouble we've, we've misread this horribly and who is it it's robbie McHugh, and he gives McHugh. us a wink a wink and a nudge do you like how i got out of that boys and of course he's ferrying maddie keenan back down the mountain if he and uh boy some quick thinking was required then but it ended well because Robbie didn't back down after the gendarme went past. He did go down the wrong way, and we were bang, straight on the wheel. I reckon, what do you reckon that saved us? We're on the Two wheel. hours? Because yeah. that's the other thing that people don't see is that um, logistics after a hilltop finish is an absolute nightmare when you've got all the supporters, all the fans. A lot of them got there two, three days before. And just like, as you know, as a journal, you're trying to file these stories. You've got deadlines. Um did you find that the hardest part, trying to juggle all that sort of stuff, Sammy? When you're at home watching on the box stand, you love the summit finishes. That's what you stay up late at night for. When you are there at the coalface covering it, you hate the summit finish. You just want flat days, time trial days, <laughs> sprint days, anything but a summit finish. If you're going to go up the mountain, that's why I like the fact they put in those ridiculous descents in the modern day with 20 k's off the other side so we didn't get stuck at the top of the mountain. 
I tell you what, lucky I didn't get car sick. If I did, I would need about 50 bags I would have filled up coming down off those mountains. Do you reckon if he went down them at a leisurely speed most of the time and really cared about any sort of typo or sp no spell check can solve the sort of typos I was having on his descent stand? My memories of you, Sam, you're looking in the, in the rearview mirror. You in the back seat trying to tap away your story of you flying down the mountain. Mate. And you know you what? I was, always, I was always made to ride bitch as well, Dan, in the, in the little mound that is the back seat. So how top-heavy do you reckon I would have been on that little seat, right? Wedged in between the likes of Ronnie Gower and Vaz. Oh, boy, they weren't moving uh, the quids. Um, tight days. Given that you're, you're obviously still well-connected to the world of sport, um, what's the likelihood of the, the Tour de France getting a start this year, Sammy? Obviously, uh, you won't be able to head over, but um, they're talking about, what, end of September or whatever. I don't know if yeah. that's the chance. Yeah. I, I haven't had a good read of this, but the um, Italian newspaper has just um, published a revised UCI calendar that's been leaked to them, they say, and it's got... I tell you what, if it did come to be, they're going to squish in uh, the Tour de France, the Giro d'Italia, Milan San Remo and a bunch of other classics into some three or three and a half month window. If it actually came to be, as unlikely as it is to see it at the moment, it would be cyclist heaven. It would be worth the wait. It would be amazing if it came to pass. I don't know if you've seen that, boys, but it's in the media. At the yeah, yeah no, I, I saw it. Only minutes ago, uh, Tour de France released another... Uh, ASO released another uh, uh, news uh, flash uh, reiterating uh, the, those dates uh, of late August uh, through to September uh, for, the, for the Tour de France and that, uh, that it will be happening and that, that the uh, recreational ride, uh, the tap will still be happening and that the women's uh, race will still be happening. So, uh, look, I, I'd be staggered if it does, but... Let's just all hope because, gee, the sport does need it. Those teams really need it. But, hey, the health of everybody comes first. And, Dan, uh, if he's reminded me of something there when he speaks of recreational riding, well, we decided that covering the Tour de France <laughs> yeah. wasn't uh, difficult enough. Uh, we thought 2017, 2018, as far as I was concerned, look, we, we need to add more stress. So what we thought would be a good idea is if you know, in, in resuming the Detour podcast would decide to ride our bikes over there as well. And I thought, you know, if he pretty fit for a man of his uh, vintage, but I'm not sure climbing uh, the cold of um, Iswad uh, on a traditional pedal bike was going to be for him. So he went out and, and sourced himself an e-bike, which is, hey, it's the modern way. But broke he broke a heap of Strava records as well, <laughs> I heard. Uh, they came cascading <laughs> down. Godzilla, we dubbed it. And what I most liked about Godzilla was, if he called it his EPO, he had access to all sorts of EPO, the electronic power option. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the amazing thing with that, because actually Bike Exchange, our wonderful partner, uh, managed to make that happen. It was a, a Belgian uh, gentleman who um, really doctored this uh, e-mountain bike up. Uh, and we it was had tricked to up. It went, it, went, it went way too fast. What, how fast are those things supposed to go? 40 kilometres an hour. This thing yeah. went it's 60, easy on the flat. Yeah. Oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. You just hear it coming <laughs> from behind you, Dan. It's like, oh, I've got rid of Iffy. So you, you, had, to, you had to pedal, Sammy. I had the pedals, and uh, you'd, you'd drop him or something, and then you just hear this, and he'd be gone. Oh, nuts. Sam, he was a lot fitter than me, and I'm you know, 70 years of age, you've got to remember. So uh, yeah, these but, days yeah, are the, slower the, these days. And I wasn't was, exactly fit either. It was a, a constant source of amusement all to a Dan, from pick-up to drop-off. What about the pick-up, Ify, how you managed to make that happen? I'll never quite figure out how that took place. Look, it was a, yeah, it was a real iffy detour moment. Uh, 
we'd missed him on, uh, at, at where I was supposed to meet him on the course of the of the first day of the Tour de France, and we just happened to be passing opposite uh, ways on the on the motorway. He we were in a Mitchell and Scott car. He said, are "You in a Mitchell and Scott vehicle?" He said, no, "I've just seen you." So we managed to pull over and uh, and get the bike. That was sheer sheer luck. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um. And a great detour story and how he got it back too, but we'll leave that for another day. Oh, and I, all I can say is that man is a saint. How patient would he have had to have been? And Godzilla, Dan, this wasn't just a small bike either. It was a Sherman tank. It was ridiculous how heavy it was. It was uh, an absolute monster of a of a unit, but uh, great fun, Godzilla. Uh, there's one detour story, uh, Sammy, that I've got it whacked in. It was the year before uh, when you had uh, a bike there, but I didn't. But... Um, and we were staying uh, in uh, in Lourdes, the the, the uh, <laughs> yep. city of miracles. And you were um, converted. You were converted there. Yeah. So you that's horrific. That joint. To, Never to, again. To an area where we were going to meet, and I had our our sponsor. Um, yes. Uh, Andrew Moore from Lexus of Blackburn, and his uh, lovely wife uh, Sarah and daughter Bethany traveling with me so we drove out to this mountain where we decided we we're going to watch the tour met you and we all get together and we're, and i've decided we're going to have a picnic on the road real french picnic i've got all the grapefruit and everything and i organized all the cutlery and plates and everything from the hotel but managed to leave them behind uh, so when we get there we've got all food and and everything and picnic parts but nothing to eat it with no plates glasses whatever <laughs> So we'd gone past a little village, only about three or four K down the road. So I sent you, Sammy, on a little job, calling at the local shop, grab some throwaway plates and knives, forks and plastic cups and etc. You you can take your next you can take us the next step. Well, it was only a K down the road. It was so close. You could almost have kicked a football down the hill and it would have gone into the township. So I had the bike, you're right, if I was going to try and squeeze a little 20K ride in anyway. But the race was pretty close, but there was still ample time. And we go down there and um, after navigating the town and the language barrier to find some plastic cutlery, which sounds easy on the surface, I could tell you it certainly wasn't. Took me a while, finally got it, went to go back up, only to be told, uh, uh, no, monsieur, can't come back up the hill. Uh, caravan. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, wait for the caravan. No, after caravan, you won't come up. Oh, no no vehicle, uh, just bike. No, no bike. Okay, I won't ride my bike. I'll walk up. No, you won't be walking up. There is no way you can come back up this hill. So here I am, Iffy. With, uh, just sev like you, did he? Several hours to kill with a bag of cutlery and a push bike. And <laughs> it just so happened I bumped into a bloke from Sweden who'd been divorced from his missus and was riding from Sweden to the south of Spain and just happened to cross paths of the Tour de France. He said, oh, I found this little map here. And seriously, this map was the roads I wasn't even sure existed. He said, do you want to come with me on a ride? And I'm like, well, this guy's either going to murder me out in the forest or we're going to have a magnificent ride. So I went off with him and got lost for four or five hours uh, on gravel and all sorts of uh, adventure and um, and then came back to, to watch uh, the race finish and hook up with you with a bag of cutlery that we never used. <laughs> well, that's true. But I managed to borrow you know, a, a small knife off uh, one of the other uh, guys on the side of the road, a, a, a French uh, um, tourist, and uh, a couple of we made some paper plates and whatever, and, and we ended up getting by. But we were opposite this farmhouse. Yes, and, tell this story, uh, please, because you had you had some you had some and issues. Kangaroo didn't you? badges. 
No, if, if he, you, you had some issues, and I don't know if this is uh, this I takes this have. podcast from a PG <laughs> to an M podcast, but yeah, you'd ate too much bread, haven't you? So people that don't know, you, white bread doesn't agree with you, but you can't help yourself, can you? Yes, well, I had uh, issues. I needed to find uh, uh, a restroom, and there was none around there, and there was no sort of trees to hide behind. So. I went up and knocked on the door of this farmhouse and they didn't speak any uh, English, of course, but they understood my, my dilemma. <laughs> so a kangaroo badges uh, everyone in there and uh, afterwards they, they were wonderful people. Uh, and as we're about, when, when the race went by, we weren't going to have time to really get to uh, a pub or something to watch the finale. So I asked these people if we could go and watch their television. So... <laughs> Grabbed Andrew Moore and, and Sarah back then. We all went in there. There's three generations of these people who really didn't want us in there, actually. But uh, the kangaroo <laughs> badgers did their job. Andrew wasn't happy with me, but we watched it. Um, drank a little bit of their uh, their wine. Not me. I was driving, but everyone else uh, and uh, some lemonade or whatever, uh, and had a, a very very interesting French day. Could you imagine so if, if that happened in Australia? Like a couple of French journo's not speaking any English, just saddle in and. And watch your your local race on TV, drinking your your, your wine or whatever. Use your Just toilet. The plumbing. The plumbing. Use your toilet. Right. Reed, I was with Ronnie Reed, and um, we twenty k to go. We get locked stuck behind the the race, and they won't let us pass, and we're stuck there. So we call into this little town. Look, we'll just go to the pub here and watch the finish. Only pub in France that doesn't have a television. Ah, oh, damn. So what are we going to do? We're really up against it. I noticed across the road this house with all Tour de France stuff stuck in it. So going there, again, no, no English at all, but they welcomed us in. There were four generations of this French family, uh, Ronnie and someone else and myself, uh, and uh, we watched on this grainy old TV, uh, but they were fantastic. How many, how many tours have you done, John, and you still can't speak French? <laughs> yes. I can speak a little bit of French. I can ask for up to, I can get up to 10 beers. Uh, yeah, basic, very basic. <laughs> you can say very sorry. Good. You've nailed that one. Sorry, oh, sir. Désolé. Yeah. yeah. I, I have the one, the famous French expression. I can go, huh? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, that was, that's a good uh, period that you went on there, Sammy. Um, no, but, uh, lucky to be there. Lucky to be there. Obviously, yeah, 2020 is not going to be on the cards, but um, would you be, are you scared off ever going back? Or would you be saddling up again, you reckon, once once uh, the crowd's in the back? Yeah. No, you'd, you'd want to see some improvement to where we are now, wouldn't you? But, I mean, I think we'll get there. I think we'll come out the other side of it. And I think sport in general, not just the tour, but sport in general will be back bigger and better than ever. The thirst for it will be enormous. It'll just be bigger than it's ever been, more excited, exciting than it's ever been. And imagine the tour after, say, if it doesn't come back this year and when it eventually does come back, it'll be the best Tour de France field in history. The crowds will be massive. Everyone will be frothing for it. It will be a great Tour de France to be at, the first one back after uh, COVID-19. 100%. Sammy, I love you to be a part of it too, mate. So, uh, and thanks heaps for uh, uh, joining us today. And uh, uh, great to uh, see you uh, jumping ahead in, in life in your new role with SEN. So, uh, uh, I love listening to you on the radio, mate. Thanks, guys. And Ify, it's been a blast, those three years. Too many stories uh, for one little podcast cross. But best of luck with this uh, resumption of this venture and, and look after yourselves, guys. No worries.
Thanks, bud. Thanks, Dan. Uh, thanks, Sam. And, and thank you, listeners and viewers. Uh, look forward to catching you all on the next podcast of The Detour. Oh